Welcome to The Brand Moat, the podcast where each month we bring you inspirational stories from global brand leaders who share how to build your brand and future-proof your business. I'm Julie Slater. I start every episode with big ideas and wrap up each show with key insights so you can focus on taking action. And in case you're wondering, why do we call this show The Brand Moat? Well, just like a castle, your moat protects you from outsiders and the competition. When the idea is applied to your company, it helps you maintain your competitive advantage. Your moat may be a feature, some tech magic or marketing secret sauce, but we think your strongest moat is your brand. This podcast is all about that. Today, my guest is Neil Waller, co-founder of Whaler, the only influencer marketing platform to partner with Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat. Whaler is a global platform that connects brands with influencers. The aim is to make advertising more personable, relevant, and inclusive, which in turn makes the creative voices of influencers more powerful. Here's my conversation with Neil Waller. Welcome, Neil. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Sure thing. Hey, you have a great origin story for Whaler. You won a Shopify competition called Build a Business. Now, what what did you win? Was it a specific category? It was. So this goes back to 2015. So Shopify ran this annual competition that was a reward for the top new business sales. So you start a new business and those that grew the fastest within the year. And we won for the category of fashion and apparel. And that has led us on to the crazy journey that is Whaler. But um, now your today. prize for that was you got to go to the luxury private island called Necker Island. Yeah. And you got to hang with Sir Richard Branson, the owner of the island. Pretty cool. Are you guys best friends now? The saying is a little bit what happens on Necker stays on Necker, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing you'd like to know a little yes, more. Yes, I would than, love to know um, how that felt <laughs> and what happened there. It was a magical moment and it was kind of crazy as well because it was it was not just myself my co-founder and winners from other categories of, of businesses it was also like the shopify leadership team and shopify is just this incredible company because they were kind of celebrating where they'd got to with the business as well and i think the thing about NECA, not to plug it too much but you're in the middle of nowhere and so you know, we're there, the other winners are there, the Shopify leadership team are there. We've got mentors like Tim Ferriss, Seth Godin, Damon John, all of who are like disconnected from the rest of the world. They're not on the phone. They're not checking their emails all the time because you're in this beautiful island. And so you, we really got to just connect with others and, and really learn from each other. And that was kind of an inspiring moment because it's, it's nice to enjoy and it was nice for the pat on the back of success of what had been done. But actually, because it led to us then creating Whaler, it was that it was that moment of inspiration that that happened there. And it's a special place. And there's this room on the island that, you know, they had a group called the Elders that Nelson Mandela used to chair. And you just got the feeling of the amount of incredible conversations and people that had been on this island. It was a true privilege to to have been there as well as being on an island in the British Virgin Islands. So, yeah, once in a lifetime moment. So you've seemed like someone that was really sure of yourself and the direction of the company, the direction it needed to take. How did that come about for you? What gives you that assurance? So I think it a, a sense of it comes off, which is good because you have to be confident in what you're doing. You have to make a decision and go forward with it, perhaps sometimes without the full information of if it's the right way to go. Importantly, you have to be willing to take new information and change your mind as new information comes. That can be new information you're getting directly, or it can be things you learn from other people. 
doesn't mean you shouldn't be sure of yourself at the time of making a decision. And I think for myself and my co-founder, you know, even with the NECA, the business that got us to NECA, which was a watch business, that was our seventh business together. Wow. So Whaler's our eighth. And it's really the the journey through all of those with successes and failures patchwork throughout it. I think just a few kind of key principles. And one that I always end up saying to the team is mountains look like molehills in the rearview mirror. Like there are always challenges and it almost always seems insurmountable at the time or just how the hell are you going to do that or this is going to break this thing. And you get over them, you tack it piece by piece and then you look back later and you think, oh, it wasn't so bad. And it's just taking that experience forward. And we've learned that you just go through things and you work it out methodically. And even if you're not right, it doesn't matter. You just keep on keep on going. And so that that gives us a level of assurance from having gone through so much, achieved so much, done so much, failed so much along that journey. You're just calmer about it. I used to like wear my heart on my sleeve, probably was a little bit up and down with it. Now the one thing team always say, nothing really phases us. But it's because you've done so much and you learn it's okay. You just you just get through it. Do you have any personal behaviors that have helped you or habits that have helped you be the person you are? I would say the one thing that has changed over the period of time. So myself and my co-founder James dropped out of college back in 2006. So we've been doing this road for a little little bit now. Going back to your starting question, actually, that it ties in with of being sure of yourself. Arrogance is a fine line. Like you have to be stubborn as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. And often like where the opportunity lies is in where a lot of people around you say, that's a stupid idea, or that won't work. That's where an opportunity lies to go and succeed and do something. So you have to have a degree of arrogance or naivety. Put the two together however you like. But it's learning that take advice and change. And I think one of the things that we've done in the last three or four years is just surrounded ourselves with people that have gone through experiences and are in different places in industry and just seek advice from them. You don't have to take it all. You don't have to action it all. But it just percolates in your brain and you get smarter through their experience. In the same way, I feel a much better entrepreneur now from the time that I've gone on this journey and the things I've learned. Why would you not go and learn that from as many people as possible? That is an interesting perspective to always be open to learning no matter where you are. Yeah. And, you know, we've we've got another little mantra in the business, which is we we always want to look back in six months and laugh at how we did it six months ago. That's an acceptance that how we do it now is a bit shit. Like we're saying we want to laugh at that in six months' time, but we can't let that paralyze us or we wouldn't get on with things. So it's going, look, it will be better in six months. We want to iteratively improve. That's always the ambition. So accept that everything's not perfect now and drive within it and always look to better ourselves and know that it will be much better, much better then. And that can be difficult because you're sort of sometimes people want something to be too perfect. I need that plan all laid out. I need every angle worked out. No, just... Just it's better to move. So as far as setting goals for a brand or company, are six months goals the best for you? I mean, do you do you do like a six months, one year, five year plan? The way we've always done it is we've had a North Star somewhere we were aiming for. I don't know what time horizon that is, but it's like if we're building this, this is what we think the capacity for it is to be. And then I think we work in six months, six month chunks. And then yeah. as we get bigger and further along, probably one year. You know, if I think about Whaler right now, we've got a very clear roadmap and plan for this year. Okay, good. Now all I care about is the six months. Next year, don't really know. Yeah. Brush strokes, ideas, but it's sort of, you know, 
walk before you can run. We won't get to do what we want to do in 2021 if we don't achieve what we need to achieve in, in 2020. Now, Whaler was uh, the first influencer marketing platform to ever win gold and silver at the Cannes Lions International Festival of Creativity. What was that like to receive that honor? It was amazing. Uh, it was amazing for the team and for the recognition. The interesting thing is that if the team were to say something about myself and my co-founder, it would probably be that we don't celebrate enough. You know, I think in a way that comes from the journey we've been on of success and failure, where you can have things that look very successful and then can turn away from you at a certain point. And so awards are a nice validation of the journey, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything. So I think in truth, it was... Uh, it's been more useful to the business because of what it stands for. And it was great for the team that did all that work. For it's me, great I'm advertising. Actually, it's lovely. Yeah. But actually, it's kind of, you know, get back to work and grow a successful, profitable, sustainable business. The amount of businesses that can win awards but have no profit or be out of business later down the line. You know, don't get me wrong. I'd rather have won it than not won it. But I think... The, the vanity of things is also another thing, again, as younger entrepreneurs, when we start our journey, the vanity of things can kind of get away from you. I'm going off on a tangent, but I'll, I'll give the example. I saw some people that are, you know, more at the age when James and I started that just got some funding for something. And I saw on their social media, new office, new laptops to everyone, new furniture and celebrating all of that. I did that. <laughs> we screwed that business up. Doesn't matter. <laughs> do you want to mean those are not right. the important things, you know? Doesn't mean don't do them, but it's it's I remember being that and I remember celebrating that moment and actually what you should have had is a crappy office and you know invested it in you know make sure that the business foundations were solid. I think that's the other thing of just the journey you you just learn to stop valuing the vanity stuff and it's it's important and valuable along the way, but it becomes secondary to actually building a a proper a proper business. Can you give me the elevator pitch for your company, Whaler? What do you do? What is it? Good question. So, well, I'll tell you why it's called Whaler because it kind of leads into it nicely and actually causes a lot of problems because my surname is Waller. And so everyone thinks I'm an egotist and the company's been named after me. <laughs> actually, my co-founder named it and he would not have named it after me. My ego is big enough. <laughs> so it's called Whaler because a whale call can travel 10,000 miles under the ocean and other whales can hear that message. What we loved through the fabric of social media is people could be publishing something and someone sitting in London can connect and uh, get meaning from something published by someone in Tokyo or Cape Town or here in Los Angeles. The message can travel that distance and still be heard. And really, Whaler is an influencer marketing company at our heart. We view influencers as publishers. So people publishing on topics they're passionate about, have some level of knowledge on. In many ways, our journalists of today, obviously in some capacities of the industry, not. But in, in uh, a good segment of people that are publishing on topics that they have a lot of knowledge on and people choose to follow them for, they are kind of journalists and publishers. And then we help brands find the right people to work with and collaborate with them to create amazing creative work and share messages through those channels of distribution. So you're a matchmaker of sorts. Of sorts, yeah. It's, Are it's, you the Tinder of, of uh, brands with influencers? <laughs> you know, it's, 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 a fair, it's a fair question. I think once something got published about us being a dating site, at the end of the day, there is a matchmaking component of finding the right people to collaborate with where there's going to be a true true affinity it's 
it's two brands working together because the influencers as publications are a brand in their own right. And today you can do that on scale to where you could work with in one campaign, 200 around the world. Well, you need to find the right 200. You need to find the 200 that are going to be a match for you, your brand aesthetics, what you stand for, the audience. So yeah, we're, we're a matchmaking site. So for a brand that really has no idea what influencer marketing is, what would be a basic like an influencer marketing 101 for them? So I think very simply, you've got individuals that at one point in time were called bloggers because they were publishing on a blog and they are publishing content that people are back then reading and consuming because they found it interesting. Then social media platforms came along and people were doing that same thing on TikTok and YouTube and Snapchat and Instagram. Can't call them bloggers anymore. So you call them influencers. And really it's those individuals that have publishing online on social media predominantly that have built up followings of individuals that are, find passion and interest and intrigue in what they're consuming from those individuals. And therefore, they have influence over them in the same way that a newspaper or a magazine has influence over its readers. And so for brands, tapping into that world is a way to access that audience through the trusted voice and opinions of an influencer. And so I just very simply wrap it up as publishing. And you did do a campaign. Was it your Dior? Was -hmm. it with 200 influencers? So how do you go about... I mean, that, I guess, is the expertise and why someone hires you. How do you go about finding those that write 200 people? Well, so in that scenario, Dior came to us with a, here's the profile of customer I'm trying to talk to. Here are the aesthetics of this campaign that we at Dior want to achieve because there's a, a visual imagery and mood board to it. Here are the different personas of people that we think represent our brand and are our customers as well as the audiences we're trying to talk to and we just go off and match that and look in the data there's also like the team visually looking over things but essentially going off and looking in the data and going okay we've now found them 200 people from these different markets they were looking for that have an aesthetic creation style that matches to Dior have perhaps even shown beliefs in what they talk about and what they follow and what they're interested in that match the kind of belief and interest set of Dior. And then lastly, also have the audience match that is the audience target that Dior are trying to speak to. And then once we've done the identification through the tools, we're we're contacting them, we're briefing them, and we're reviewing the work. And how would you explain the success of that campaign? Like what about it worked the best? So first and foremost, that campaign achieved huge reach and engagement for them online and awareness of what they were trying to promote. The bit that surprised them was the level of creative production that came back from people all around the world. And so, you know, they had 200 different people creating creative assets in 58 different countries. Dior ended up putting that in stores around the world and did an exhibition in China showcasing the work because they just went, this is amazing. This is creative work coming from individuals that belong to our customer base from all around the world. Can you imagine trying to do 200 photo shoots in 58 countries? I'm sure they could. It's a big enough company. But the amount of work that would be required to do that, people flying around, we did all of that in 45 days for them. And they just saw these creative assets wow. and went, wow, that's amazing. We can use that. And that's been one of the, the, the trends in general, the amount of times work's going on buses and billboards and digital out of home and print advertising, and it's coming from these different creative voices. 
it's also diverse, you know, an entire spread of a creative community that comes from every walk of life where, you know, income, upbringing, beliefs, none of that really matters. It's their creative voice that they're being discovered for and used and working with them to, to tap into that. And how much control do you give influencers on a campaign? It's a good question. I mean, my political answer is loads and none. So loads because they're given a very clear brief that could have very tight parameters or very open parameters, but they're given a very clear brief and they can say, that's for me. I think I can do a great job for that. Then they are held to account for delivering on that brief. Do you preview what they're going to deliver or they just deliver it? We don't preview it in real time in terms of them creating it, but we are approving it and reviewing it before it gets to the client and before it goes out in the wild. But I think in essence, it's sort of, if I go with that publisher analogy again, if you were to collaborate with good housekeeping, you know what that magazine stands for. You know what the aesthetic is there. So if it's a good match, the brand kind of knows what they're going to produce as long as they stay in parameters of what good housekeeping stands for and what the brief said. It's kind of like that with influencers. So that's where so much work goes into that matchmaking side to truly find the right people that are suitable. You, You see all the portfolio of their previous work. You know what they stand for creatively and from a messaging standpoint. And you've got a clear brief that's saying what you want produced. And they've said, yeah. I definitely think I can do that. Now, stuff comes back that pushes the boundaries, but that actually is quite what brands like a lot of the time because they go, oh, I hadn't thought of an idea like that. Or I hadn't thought how, you know, a, a, a single parent in this market might have interpreted this kind of brief and it teaches them something as well. So once they've got the brief and been chosen, they've got complete creative freedom as long as they create in the parameters of the of the brief. And do you ever worry about, you know, like what stops an influencer from going directly to these brands and not working with you? Yes, all the time, but not from a contractual standpoint. Our job is to provide value to both brands and influencers in the ecosystem. And if we can't do that, we don't have a place being there. And so, you know, we have had this conversation internally kind of all throughout time since we started. It's like, it's no good putting it in a contract I'm sure we have the clauses in the contract because it would be silly not to. But it's not the approach to go to. It's not the place to think that you're going to enforce it. The place to focus on is, am I adding value? Am I helping both parties out? That's what's going to give you longevity and what you've got to do. You've got to be serving people and giving them service and value that helps either make their life easier, save them time, make them more money, allow them to find better things to do help with the measurement, help them keep on top of things. Whatever it is, you've just got to be adding value. And then, you know, if you focus on that, you won't get cut out. And if we ever do get cut out, and we have on times, I go to them and say, why? Where did we Where did we drop it? Where, where did this scenario arise where it didn't make sense to work with us? Mm-hmm. And then we go away and try and work out, should we be adding value there? And if we don't, I'm happy for them to not need us. You can't have everything. Go off and have kids on their own. <laughs> exactly. You can't have everything. You've got to know where you, you, you know, you're adding value. And then I've also, it's interesting, a lot of people with influencers, of course, it's all about the numbers of the influencer, but I have seen interviews with you where you say sometimes it could be an influencer just who has a solid 5,000 you know, followers yeah. that could be great. How do you figure out who is someone that has value and how does a brand figure that out? Let's stick with the avenue of influencers as a distribution channel, as a publisher. All that really matters beyond the high level of follower numbers is who are the audience and how engaged is that audience with that influencer. 
on the topic that the brand is wanting to access them about. And you could have a million followers and only 2% could be relevant. So actually, there's a good example here. There was, a, I won't name the brand, but there was a brand that was desperate to work with this big YouTuber that had an unboxing account. So I don't even see them. They're actually quite fascinating videos where they're like going through a product. Oh, yeah. They un- like unwrap yeah, things. Exactly. And uh, but done in a re- you know, it kind of if you don't see it people would be like what the hell are you talking about that sounds crap. But go Google yeah. um unbox videos and there's some really cool ones. So I think this person had I don't know maybe like 2 million views a video. And this company needed to reach an audience in Canada. They were obsessed with the idea of working with this YouTuber. And, and then they come to you? And they came to us yeah. and they said, we really want to work with this person. We really, really want to work with this person. I'm like, okay, it's going to cost a bit of money, which is fine, because actually the amount relative to his audience and what they achieved was, was sensible. But I said, but you know only 2% of that audience is in Canada. And Canada was where they were targeting. Mm-hmm. And so thankfully they came to their senses and went, right. yeah, we're not going to pay for 2 million people when only 2% of it makes sense. So... To your question of when does 5,000 make sense, when that 5,000 is, is an absolute Canada. solid match, <laughs> in this example, in Canada, yeah. working with 50 people, all of 5,000 in Canada. So it's it's really a case of looking at the audience. Of course, you can work with smaller ones. Everyone says, okay, smaller ones are more engaged with their audience. Yeah, but there's, they are, but they're smaller audiences. So there's naturally a higher engagement as you get bigger. There's drop-off. Doesn't mean bigger ones don't make sense to work with because there's economies of scale in the pricing as well. You don't tend to pay 20 times the price for someone with 20 times the um, audience. So it's looking at the audience and it's looking at your budget and saying, can I afford that or do I need to play here? And there's there's solid value in, in the smaller ones. And all you got to look at is the audience. What other campaigns would you say were really successful or that you thought were the most creative that you've been involved in? You know, there's been such a an interesting range. I, th- I think the fundamental thing for me is always, again, just that creative bar. And I'm sort of waiting for a Super Bowl ad to be made through this community because I think the creative talent is there and is available um, for that. I've been really proud of some work that we do around the purpose-driven stuff, so stuff with Burt's Bees and stuff with Unilever that is helping brands tell that purpose story. We built a community I say we, actually, the community kind of drove it, called the Change Collective, which is a group of influencers that are all about businesses with a purpose, with a sustainable supply chain that give back to the community in some way, shape or form. And they actively look to go and work with brands like that and help tell that story as well. And equally, they can go and help brands that aren't strong on that and advise them, look, what do we look for as consumers? What do we like about what other brands are doing? So I think the work around that is particularly poignant at this moment in time and do you work with with the influencers do you have exclusive contracts with certain influencers so we do with some that we sort of represent and help them manage and grow their their career but no in general we don't because for us it's about finding the right talent to work on the right job for a brand wherever they may be versus just having a set of influencers that we have to give work to all the time and uh, that are reliant solely upon us for that income stream whereas i think you know actually it's quite important that the job is no let me find the best people that are suitable for this for this brand and what about the worry about people having uh, false fake followers and yeah it's huge you know so what do you how do you manage that it's a huge problem in the industry there is an absolute ton of it some self-inflicted where people have 
gone and done things that actually on the face of it might look like real marketing things you know companies advertising hey do this and we'll get you fifty thousand real followers and people go oh okay yeah why when i do that when, when actually it's not the case actually from a technical standpoint of dealing with it it's very very easy because we get the we, we're connected to the platforms and we get to see the data and it's very easy to see what's real um and what's not so you can't detect it just looking at account looking at followers and work it out but when you're connected to the data it's it's a non-issue but it's big in the industry there's been yeah. a lot a lot of it let's say a brand is considering what kind of advertising they want to do what would you say the difference from hiring like a george clooney to do your commercial as opposed to hiring an influencer who could also be a george clooney out there what's the advantage of really going the influencer route as opposed to a commercial ideally it doesn't have to be one or the other but if you think about the money that you're going to spend on someone like George Clooney, it's probably a hell of a lot. <laughs> and you could probably work with 10,000 influencers for the same money. It's probably somewhere in that quantum. I don't know what he charged, but I'm just going off what, what I suspect it might be. How do you test the value of an influencer? Because I would imagine it's not just sales. Maybe it's conversations that are started online yeah exactly and you can measure all of that so we do brand awareness reports where you can go out to the audience and show did people's perception shift about this product did their awareness shift about this product did it change their emotional response to the brand in some way shape or form so that when they come across it again they kind of lean into the advertising or you know when they're in the supermarket and see it on the shelf that's the one they pick the kind of all, all the stuff that advertising is generally designed to do can all now be measured through influencer marketing as well this will blend in with the previous question where you said campaigns to be proud of we work with a brand called saint john knits and we did a campaign with them it actually was written up in the new york times i think last week of just how this brand is reinventing itself and in that campaign we work with 75 really amazing I mean, I never know where these labels should come from, but we'll call them micro, mid-tier, macro influencers, just a spread. But they also work with three Hollywood celebrities. And that was a desire and a push from the brand. But actually, the campaign with all of it together worked really, really well. And the Hollywood celebrities still gave some cachet and interest to it from audience. And actually, it was interesting for the influencers to be involved in something alongside Hollywood celebrities as well. So it can still work really, really well, What's the difference with a macro or a micro influencer? God and are there knows. other I mean, labels? The, I think the one I can't stand the most is nano influencer because what I mean, nano, isn't that like a molecule? What's the most successful social media platform you use? Uh, Instagram. It's it's still the one that's the magazine for people and it has the broadest range of of people using it. TikTok's up and coming and exciting. 1.4 billion users outside of China. It's huge. The age range demo on it is growing all the time. And everyone still, I think, thinks of it just as for a younger generation. But the amount of users that are over 25 and even over 30 on it. Changing, around, yeah. Growing rapidly. I think it's still got, you know, some brand safety things to work through. But they're, they're recruiting amazing people from other platforms that are going and bringing all the learnings of the past to to drive it forwards but no it's instagram is still the bread and butter youtube drives a lot of value but it's expensive relative to to instagram but instagram's the majority and then without giving away any of your secret sauce of your company 
Would you say most of what you do is based off of like an algorithm? How much is human research? How much is maybe a gut of what you think might work? All the inner workings. <laughs> so there is no silver bullet. It's not one thing. We've built a ton of tech and that tech enables what we do. And, you know, our technology team, we've been going around for almost coming up to four years now, have been building and evolving the product to serve our team and the function of what they do, these collaborations over that period. And so then one part of it is just the experience that the company has and they have in, in working in this space. The final last part of it is then the measurement capabilities, because you can look at a lot of data, you can think you've got great ideas. If you can't measure it, you can't learn from it. So you can't just hypothetically say, oh, I think that works. So we've you know, spent so much time and money and great people in building and working on with the industry on these measurement capabilities. That's partly about being able to help hire up, prove to hire ups the, the effectiveness of this stuff. But it's also like learning, oh, okay, this kind of stuff worked best here. I can now plug that back in to the beginning of the of the process mm -hmm. so yeah it's not not one single silver bullet but you certainly can't do this stuff manually so one of the features of whaler is that it standardizes the process the rules the pricing and reporting of influencer marketing across multiple platforms why would you say that's important and who does that benefit it benefits everyone involved one of the biggest problems for an industry to grow is when just no one has a clue what anyone should be paid, what's the worth of anything, and people get taken advantage of, and people take advantage of people. So, you know, I I remember a few years ago, you'd, you'd see some influencers of the exact same kind of caliber in terms of creative audience size capability and charge brands two totally different prices for a job. And, you know... It ultimately doesn't really work. In the end, brands get annoyed by that. And how do you justify it? So the more this stuff becomes process driven and streamlined and there are rules around it, the more it can become a reliable part of the marketing funnel and people can drive more money into it and plan around it. And, you know, startups play well in that unknown. You know, they're, they're better at finding the boundaries and being a bit scrappier. Big companies do not like doing that. Which is why they're often slower on these trends, right? Because it just takes them longer to actually commit to doing something because of all the rules that they have. But they're where the money's at as well. They're where the mm -hmm. big advertising dollars are at. And so why this industry is growing so fast now is because the biggest advertisers in the world are plowing their budgets into influencer marketing. It was Estee Lauder that said, I can't remember if this was US or global, but 75% of their marketing budget was going into influencer marketing. Mind-blowing. They wouldn't do that without the rules and process and thinking this is a reliable mm -hmm. place to pump that much money through. So it benefits absolutely everyone by getting to that uh, point. It also helps take work out where was it not working and, and stop that happening. The fascinating thing about influencer marketing, of course, is that it's global, that people from, you know, someone in L.A. and someone in London can talk to someone in Singapore. But how could you, uh, talking to a brand, how can you tell a brand, you know, how do they use this as a great power and what's a warning for how you could misuse that? One of the mistakes of the past was just seeing it as a loudspeaker where you kind of rent this influencer and rent their audience. And if I go back to the publishing analogy, Vogue, for example, I don't think any brand that ever worked with Vogue 
felt, oh, we're just going to rent their audience. We're going to force them to say what we want them to say. It was a true collaboration to work with them and access that audience and learn from them as well. And so the the big no-no for brands is don't just you're, – you're not just buying media and just putting your message out there. This is a collaboration and they are publishers and work with them and learn from them as well. At the end of the day, these are the customers of the brand. It's breaking down the walls between brand marketing teams and the end customers. You know, we were super fortunate when we started Whaler. Within a few months, I was speaking at an event in London and a chap by the name of Sir John Hegarty was in the audience, someone I'd never heard of before. And he's the founder of a creative agency called BBH. He's one of the most awarded and heralded creatives of all time. And he became an investor and he became our chairman. And he gave us this mission statement, liberating the creative voice. And really, that's what it stands for. It's, It's allowing these creatives all around the world to share their creative voice and get an income for that level of creativity and the voice that they've got. So when they truly tap into that, it's really powerful. What would you say if if a brand is looking to do some influencer marketing for the first time? Like how, what's the first step to dipping your toes in? I think the, the thing is, go and look at what people are talking about your brand. I'd be very surprised if brands don't exist where some influencers aren't already talking about that brand. doesn't, again, matter what size the influencer is. If you're a brand and there are people online on social that are posting about it, that are engaging with your account, go to them. Go learn from them. Send them a message. Hey, we're thinking about doing a campaign. You know, would you like to get involved? You can learn so much from starting starting there and going to the people that are the true diehard fans of your brand. And then that's not the only place you can live. You've got to grow that over time. One of the things, again, that John Hegarty said to us is in advertising, it was called broadcast. That's because it needed to go broad. Otherwise, you're just speaking to the same people all the time. Speaking to the same people all the time is the easiest way to win more sales. You know, everyone says like your your best customer is your existing customer. But if you want to grow, you also need to get Mm -hmm. more people to become customers. And that's where you start to kind of broaden that that reach. But I would say I would, you know, when you're first starting off, start small, start with the people that are already fans of the brand that have some social following and go and try and collaborate with them and grow it from there. I think the other thing that we did well when we had our brands was we tried to turn every customer. I'm not going to say influencer. We tried to turn every customer into a marketeer. So like we made really nice packaging. And the amount of times people received our product and took to social to share the packaging, we tried to turn every single customer into a marketer and talk about our brand. And again, that starts the whole cycle of things. And then my very last one, again, this is what we used to do is when we first started our brands, we put all of our own brand assets, you know, that we'd taken from photo shoots that we'd done into our advertising. As we did more and more on social, we started to take the assets coming from influencers and our customers and put those in our advertising. Our advertising performance went through the roof. I think it created assets that were more realistic, more appealing to people. I also think like we had people create in Sydney. So when we were advertising to people in Australia, it was with assets that had Sydney as a backdrop. Well, it appealed to them more. It worked better. It had a stronger resonance and the results um, were better. So, you know, it's, it's seeing it as how many different places can you leverage this across your business. And actually one last one is we, we put social feeds on our websites. So when people were looking at our products, they could see other people wearing them. And that gave that kind of 
social currency of, hey, you're not going to be the only one buying this product. Don't worry. There's other people talking about it and loving it. it. That helps you choose to make that purchase decision as well. So we call this podcast the brand moat. And it's about, you know, as a castle, you have a moat around to really fight off. Hey, as a Brit, I know that well. The competition. How would you use your influencer marketing as a brand moat to fight off competition? Brand is the most incredible thing. What makes me willing to wear this hoodie today that I could have bought for $20 and probably bought for 100 Brand. Affinity. What that brand says to me, how I feel about that brand, how I feel about other people that wear that brand. What an amazing moat. Why the hell did I... There is no logo on this hoodie. Why am I not wearing a $20 hoodie? I mean, I'm saying that slightly in shame. How stupid. (laughs) But like, this is what reflects consumerism. So it's the brand story. You've got to tell that brand story. And again, going back to Hegarty, because I always go there to make myself seem more intelligent. A brand is not what a brand says it is. A brand is what consumers say about a brand. Go work with influencers, drive that consumer story, make it be out there, make people hear about it, come across it, where everyone's talking about it. Because again, like influencer marketing is 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 circles. People follow more than one influencer. And when they see customers talking about it, it, what am I missing out on? What do I need to know about this brand? And unfortunately, like that's what allows people to charge a premium um, for for products. So you want to moat, build a build a brand. Want to build a brand, get talk people talking about it. And there's kind of no better channel right now than influencer marketing. That's great advice. Thank you, Neil. Thanks for being on the program. Pleasure. That's our show. Hope you enjoyed it. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is brought to you by Loomly, the brand success platform that helps your team collaborate, publish, and succeed all in one place. Check out Loomly.com and start your free trial now. Thanks for listening. I'm Julie Slater.